Power Hour. Welcome to the Biz News Power Hour, where we give you the rational perspective on business news that matters. It's Tuesday, the 16th of March. I'm Jackie Cameron with your Biz News Power Hour. On today's show, Jean-Pierre Fester, the Protea Capital Management founder and fund manager who has successfully shorted stocks like Steinhoff and Tesla, shares insights on domestic and global stocks. Neil Froneman, CEO of Sabania Stillwater, joins us to chat about his vision to merge his company with Anglo Gold, Ashanti and Goldfields. Richard Byworth, CEO of NASDAQ-listed Diginex, joins us in the second half and we hear about his forecast that Bitcoin may rise to $175,000 by the end of the year. Also coming up, Peter Hundersmark, Portfolio Manager at Flagship Asset Management, on what's next for China stocks, including Tencent, which powers up Process and SA favorite Naspers. Last but not least, we hear from Bongani Latuli, the attorney who fought and won the battle on behalf of the African Christian Democratic Party to get Ivor Mecton approved to treat COVID-19 in South Africa. First, my colleague Melanie Nathan brings us up to date with the main business headlines. ShopRite has reported a sales increase in the six months ended in December. Adjusting for the closure of the SA liquor shop business as a result of the nationwide lockdown, supermarkets RSA business grew sales by almost 8%. Headline earnings per share increased by nearly 11%. In the reporting period, the group created over 4,000 new jobs. The supermarkets business outside of South Africa only achieved marginal growth. The company closed the last of its Kenyan stores in February this year and is at the approval stage in the sale of its Nigerian supermarket operation. Astral expects earnings per share and headline earnings per share for the six months ending in March to be down by close to 50%. The company says the impact of the COVID-19 lockdown on the economy and constrained consumer spending has been evident throughout the period. Astral says its poultry operations have not been able to recover significant increases in feed costs in the selling price of poultry products. ESCOM says it's undertaking long overdue repairs at its facilities, leading to high risk of nationwide outages. The utility has implemented electricity rationing on 19 days so far this year after record blackouts last year. We will continue to take units off and maintain them properly, said Chief Operating Officer Jan Oberholzer. He added that the power system remains vulnerable and volatile, with the risk of load shedding significantly reduced after the completion of maintenance by September. Bitcoin has given up all the gains made over the weekend, when prices reached a record of $61,000. The largest cryptocurrency rocketed only to fall in following days. It sank almost 7% on Monday and was little changed today, according to Bloomberg. DJIR, head of Asia-Pacific with crypto exchange Luno in Singapore, says the volatility is due to profit-taking after Bitcoin's recent run. He predicted that prices may bounce back to $62,000 before another slide. Germany, Italy, France and Spain have joined other European countries that have temporarily stopped using the COVID-19 shot made by AstraZeneca over blood clot concerns. According to the Wall Street Journal, this will slow the already sluggish rollout of vaccines and may damage the credibility of the vaccine itself. Denmark, Ireland, Norway, the Netherlands and Iceland are also awaiting the outcome of an investigation by the European Medicines Agency. Subscribe to Business Premium for full access to the Wall Street Journal and more on this story. I'm Melanie Nathan and that was your Business Flash Briefing. Justin Rowe Roberts covers the stock markets for biznews.com. Justin, what were the main developments on the JSE today? The JSE All Share Index was slightly down to 67,400. Diversified miner Sabanya Stillwater climbed 4.5% to over 70 rand a share. ShopRite increased by 7 rand to 152 rand a share on the back of an impressive half year results announcement and dividend declaration. Index heavyweight Naspis increased 35 rand to 3,440 rand a share. Another down day for the banking sector, with APSA the biggest loser falling over 4% to 127 rand a share. In the currency markets, the rand was flat against all the major currencies on the day, to 14 rand and 83 cents against the greenback, 
20 rand and 60 cents against the pound and 17 rand and 65 cents against the euro. Gold is up to $1,737 an ounce. Bitcoin is flat on the day. One Bitcoin will put you back 825,000 rand. And lastly, Brent crude is down at $68.30 a barrel. You're listening to the Biz News Power Hour with Jackie Cameron. Jean-Pierre Fester of Protea Capital Management is closely watched by his competitors in the investment world. He spoke to me, Jackie Cameron of Biz News, earlier today about the suggestion to merge Sibanya Stillwater, Anglo Gold Ashanti and Goldfields. Take a listen. Jean-Pierre, when you hear somebody like Neil Froneman of Sibania Stillwater saying that we should have a mega gold company and he sort of publicly puts it out there to his competitors, uh, Anglo Gold Ashanti and Goldfields, they should merge. How do you absorb this information and what do you do in your portfolio? Yeah, it's an interesting one. So I, I think firstly, Neil Froneman is known for deal making. Um, if you go back a few years ago with Uranium One, he wasn't very successful, but he has been very successful with Sabanya Steelwater. When you look at the, th- the three big gold companies, uh, you know, a company like Anglo Gold Ashanti doesn't really have any South African gold mining exposure. And a company like Goldfields only has um, uh, Western Deep. So it, it, I can't see where it makes strategic sense for them when they don't really have a South African footprint, footprint versus a Bunny Stillwater that does have a significant South African footprint. So uh, Mr. Froneman will need to come to shareholders and explain to them why this makes sense, what the synergies would be. Um, I do know that there's a changing at the guard at Goldfields, for instance, with Chris, Chris Griffiths uh, coming in there, uh, which uh, he's a very highly respected CEO. And I would rather want companies to focus and give someone like uh, Chris Griffiths a chance to see what he can do with Goldfields versus a mega merger, which might look good on paper or good on a spreadsheet. It can get you to size, but what are the real tangible benefits from that size? And I think the jury is still out and the shareholders are still unsure what the benefit would be if you put the three big South African listed gold miners together. It's a very warm welcome to Neil Froneman, CEO of Sabanya Stillwater. Neil, we've just heard from fund manager Jean-Pierre Fester asking what the benefits would be of the merger that you have proposed. Can you set out your rationale? Um, yes, certainly, Jackie. And and um, um, and and really, we're looking at a complete universe of gold companies. Um, I think the South African ones, um, you know, commercially make a lot of sense, but. Uh, the, the context for our comments was really around our results presentation where we had a, an analyst asking um, about our entry into battery metals and our intention to grow in the gold space. And um, um, both, both, uh, both of those initiatives are really driven by the fact that at, um, at $13.5 billion of market capitalization, Sabanya Stillwater is still not relevant in the in the bigger investment space. We, you know, the other companies that he referred to are just part of a universal gold company. Um, they they sixty percent and forty percent smaller uh, than ourselves. Um, and if we're not relevant, they're not relevant, and we're all going to either get consolidated internationally, um, or we can do the consolidating. Now the the real the real benefit for shareholders, and it's not an it's not an issue of just size. It's that bigger companies um, trade at higher multiples. So, um, you know, the companies like ourselves um, um, and smaller gold companies trade anywhere around a four times uh, multiple EBITDA. Uh, companies that are twenty billion dollars plus are trading at six times uh, multiples. And, and yes, of course, the assets do make a difference. But I can assure you we are trading at the same multiples as, uh, as uh, Goldfields and Anglo Gold Ashanti with a predominance of South African assets. It's really the risk profile of the assets. So it's not, it's not South Africa per se. But uh, um, if there was to be anything proposed, of course, it would be set out clearly. But Goldfields and Anglo Gold are just part of a universe of companies that we look at and uh, 
as I say, an analyst noted that South African companies traded at a lower multiple and that there was some uh, commercial merit in looking at South Africa, and, uh, and that's where the discussion started. Have you had any recent conversations with your competitors about a merger in recent weeks? Um, you know what? We, we talk to many different gold companies. We go through the front door of uh, all of them. Um, and, um, you know, over a period of time, we've spoken to many. And, uh, um, you know, there's, uh, there's pros and cons of looking at North American gold producers. There's pros and cons of looking at South African gold producers. So we, we continue to look. But I can assure you when we make a move, it will be value accretive. It will make sense to to all shareholders, and and I think um, I think the investment community knows us for doing smart deals, um, and of course both both groups of shareholders um, have to benefit, and of course that's what we're good at. So that will that will be the outcome should we make a move, and uh, and of course it may it may not even involve South African gold companies. You said at the time that this could be in the national interest. Can you elaborate on why a larger mining company would be in the national interest for our listeners who aren't investors but are South Africans who are very much interested in seeing South Africa prosper? Absolutely, and, and that's one of the benefits of, uh, of looking at South African companies is, uh, is, first of all, I think it's time to put South Africa back on the map as, uh, as, as a country – um, that runs, you know, good businesses and can take a seat um, at a table to to influence the the direction of of uh, specific industries and commodities. Now, I say that on the basis of us being the biggest platinum producer in the world, uh, Sabanya Stillwater, and we have been able, with the the end users as an example of platinum, uh, to drive substitution of of palladium with platinum as an example of being a large producer, having a seat at the table and being influential in terms of the, um, the, the commodities that you produce. Right now, when I go to international industry meetings, we don't even feature as, as South Africa. And it's about time we as South Africans uh, – did do as 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 the Springboks do, and we win the game of business uh, wherever we play it all over the world, and and that's in the South African interest, um, and I think there there is real merit uh, in that as well. My colleague Justin Rowe Roberts covers JC listed stocks. He's in our Johannesburg studio, and he has a question or two for you, Neil. Neil, you've just completed your deleveraging phase. A potential merger of Anglo Gold and or Goldfields would be a much larger transaction than the Stillwater deal. How would a deal of this magnitude be financed? Well, listen, um, we're a much bigger company than we were when we did Stillwater. You would remember when we did Stillwater, we we were about the same size as the company that, that we acquired. We, we have um, significant um, access to cash uh, from from our own business. We we have an equity now that is uh, trading at uh, better multiples than than certainly the South African producers. But I think we we we're jumping the gun, assuming that uh, this is going to happen. As I've said, this is part of the universe of gold companies we look at and. Um, and every transaction we've done is structured in a way um, that is smart. But uh, certainly, we'll, let me tell you what we won't do, irrespective of the of the target. We will not take on excessive amounts of debt. We will not conduct uh, or use our equity if it's uh, dilutive. Um, so, so that's what we won't do. What we will do is a combination of uh, of of things to get a transaction done. So. Justin, it's easier to tell you what we won't do than, than what we will do because it depends very much on the target. Eh? And Neil, I know the gold price has pulled back sharply since its highs in mid-2020, but what makes you so confident of the fundamentals behind the gold price? I know with the Stillwater deal, you timed that perfectly in terms of the precious metals, but what, what, the fundamentals behind gold, what, what makes us so strong in your book? 
Yeah, so so listen, we we've always been we've always been bullish about gold. We tried to to move quickly before uh, before COVID, COVID early last year, but we could not close the transaction we were trying to close, and um, that was on the basis that uh, we could we could see gold um, um, going up, um, basically on the on the basis that it's it's a it's it's a risk diversification. Um, a commodity for an investor. I think that um, the combination of PGMs and gold are are counter-cyclical. So in other words, while there's economic prosperity, our industrial side of our business, being the PGMs and battery metals, will do well. But we all know, and, and, I, and I just heard in your newscast, that there are question marks about around vaccines. Uh, there could well be third waves uh, in the rest of the world. And then gold will feature. That's the one thing. I think the second thing is that where you've had enormous stimulus packages like we're seeing now, um, it takes about three or four years and, and, and gold will generally react, uh, in those situations as well. So in the long term, and, and really we don't, we're not speculators, but in the longer term, we, we are bullish on the gold price. We believe it will go up and it will be counter cyclical to our PGMs. Um, and, and we need that counter cyclical to really pay industry leading dividends in a sustainable way. That's, uh, that's how we think about gold. So in, in general, we're quite bullish about gold in the long term. Neil, gold versus Bitcoin. A lot of young people particularly are very optimistic that Bitcoin is the new gold. We hear that the price just keeps going up. And what is your view on Bitcoin as a gold miner? Don't you see this as a threat to your longer-term prospects? Not, not at all. You know, um, I, think, um, I, I think that uh, investors try and compare Bitcoin to, to, to gold. And to me... Bitcoin behaves like any uh, any general commodity. Um, yes, they try and link it to gold as a coin. Um, gold is just a fundamental store of wealth, and um, and it will behave completely different to Bitcoin. Um, I think, uh, much like I said, when there's economic prosperity, you will find Bitcoin will do very well. Um, when I think there's, you know, when it becomes a, a risk-off market, you will see you will see Bitcoin uh, not do well. It behaves completely, completely different in my mind to gold. It's not a threat to gold. Um, I don't think you can replace gold as a long sto- long-term uh, store of wealth. It's a real precious metal, and uh, it will always have its place. Neil, have you bought any Bitcoin? No, <laughs> but I've bought lots of gold. Okay, thank you. That was Neil Froneman, CEO of Sabanya Stillwater. My colleague, Charles Boerter, has the CFA designation Chartered Financial Analyst behind his name, and he'll be chatting to us later on in the show about ShopRite. Earlier, we heard from Jean-Pierre Fister of Protea Capital sharing his thoughts with me, Jackie Cameron, of BizNews on the merger of gold mining companies. And that was the proposal by Neil Froneman, CEO of Sabania Stillwater. Jean-Pierre is known for astute shorts, including on Steinhoff and African Bank. He shares his latest thinking on a range of global and domestic stocks. Take a listen. Hi, Jackie. Yes, uh, the, the, the infamous. Um, yes, it isn't that a short seller always gets it right, but it's um, pleasing if you can make some money for your investors as happened in the case of African Bank and Steinhoff. Tell us about some of your more recent uh, victories over the long guys. Well, I do think that uh, when you think about typical shorts, you can you can think about them in terms of the three Fs, fads, frauds, and failures. And when it comes to frauds, those are actually quite rare. You don't get a lot of companies that uh, grow to a very large size on the back of fraud. So there haven't been any of those recently. Uh, there are always some fads and some failures. And um, the last few months has actually been quite tough for a short seller, I would say, since uh, Vaccine Monday in early November. Because a lot of companies that we think are failures or don't create a lot of value over the long term have now benefited from a lot of cheap money, a lot of liquidity. And that means that... Uh, Companies that otherwise might not have done well 
have done quite well, and therefore their share prices have done quite well the last few months. So it hasn't been easy being a short seller. Thank goodness we aren't short any of the mining companies in South Africa, the likes of the gold and platinum miners, because they are up very strongly over the last few months. But if we think about general industrial companies um, and some of the global companies that have too much debt, those have effectively been bailed out because of all this liquidity and low interest rates. And that has made it quite tough as a short seller since early November. So uh, late last year, you commented that tech stocks were looking very frothy and that the clock was ticking and we were getting to the midnight hour in the US. Uh, that hasn't happened yet, but are you preparing yourself to enjoy some good returns when the market crashes? Yes, I would say that the way that we manage portfolios is we never take a one-way bet. So in this case where we felt uh, late last year that some of the tech shares were expensive, we cut a lot of our long holdings. But we have still been long a lot of the tech stocks. It just was a case of some of these companies, which are great companies, that compound value at a very high rate, got so expensive that we felt that a lot of the value that they do create and maybe will create was already discounted in the share prices. So we haven't flipped all the way from being long tech shares to being short tech shares, but we are a lot, a lot less long tech shares. The likes of Meituan Dianping, for instance, in China or JD.com, uh, they are up very strongly over the last uh, few months and few years. So we have trimmed those. And you've also seen that play out almost in a thematic way where, again, since early November, you've seen this shift between growth and value stocks. And value stocks that for a number of years have underperformed growth stocks have all of a sudden outperformed growth stocks over the last few months. And that we've seen that in our portfolios as well. So it was a good call, us uh, cutting some of our long exposure to the tech sector. Uh, we've actually done quite well in our longs. It's just the shorts that have hurt a bit the last few months as these company share prices have risen. But we still like the tech shares on the long side. So we've heard a lot of famous investors saying that it's not all stocks that are overheated, but just some emerging stocks. What is your view on that? Yes, although I must say it seems like the bubble is quite broad. And, and some people have called it the everything bubble this time around. I wouldn't go so far as to say everything but I would say most things are in bubble territory. So whether it's the tech shares, which are high quality companies that are very expensive currently, they have come back a little bit, but they're still on the expensive side. Whether it's the low quality companies that have seen a doubling in the share price. A lot of the, the companies, for instance, in the um, airline sector or the hospitality sector or the oil and gas sector, their share prices are back to where they were pre-COVID uh, a, a year ago, which is, is quite unbelievable. Um, they also look expensive now. Um, there are pockets of opportunity, I would say, in, for instance, the U.S. healthcare sector. Uh, and we're also finding some value in U.S. home builders. And in South Africa, a number of domestically focused companies um, that got so cheap that they do offer value, even if they uh, will have a tough time in South Africa. So it's not a bubble everywhere. There are these pockets of opportunity. But when you have interest rates being so unbelievably low uh, in the U.S., and that has sort of uh, led to contagion to central banks in other places, including in South Africa, uh, it does lead to bubbles because money is cheap. Um, and that does concern us. But it doesn't mean we take a one-way bet and we short all the expensive shares. We still have a balanced portfolio and we look for those pockets of opportunity as we have done. Have you looked at Tesla at all? Yes, uh, we have been short Tesla twice over the last few years, and I'm happy to report that we made money um, on both those occasions where we were short. The most recent one was roughly a month ago. Um, I would say right at the, at the height of the, of the, uh, the fad, the, the excitement of Tesla buying Bitcoin, we decided to short Tesla on a balance of probabilities. We felt that was a good risk return payoff. And we covered that short uh, a week ago. So we have made some money on Tesla on the short side, which not a lot of short sellers can say. So I'm quite pleased about that. But once again, it is a fad stock. So when it comes to fad stocks and you want to short them, one needs to be very careful because the fad, the emotion, the market excitement and the retail participation 
can take these shares from very expensive to extremely expensive. Um, so it is more tactical and more of a shorter term trade where we do short companies like Tesla, uh, because, you know, I see once again this week, Elon Musk poking fun at, um, at the market as at his own shelters by calling himself the, uh, the techno king now of, of Tesla. So it just shows you that it's an unbelievable company with unbelievable technology, but does it mean it should be worth uh, as much as it is one of the the, the 10 uh, most valuable companies in the world? Mm, I think maybe not. So we are not on the long side on Tesla. We've been on the short side twice and and twice we've been profitable on the short side. You've written a lot about Naspers and Tencent. Where have you been on that side of the equation? We saw Tencent taking a bit of a smack this week. Yes, uh, we've perennially been long Naspers. It's one of our favorite shares and it at most times is also our, our our largest long. And what we've done more recently is we've actually shorted process versus our our NASPAS position. So what we are saying is historically we liked NASPAS for its own assets and for the fact that it traded at a discount to the valuation of Tencent as well as the discount of the valuation of all the other bits you get with it. For instance, the, the OLX group and the uh, the holdings in Delivery Euro and other food delivery services. Um, and that has been the primary reason why we've had a large long position in Aspash. More recently, we think that um, in the coming week, we have the, the uh, I think it's the two-year anniversary of Aspash selling its uh, 10 cent stake of roughly 2% down, uh, which is an interesting date to be aware of. And uh, we also think the pressure is rising on the Naspash management team to do something about this discount, which widened after they listed process and has widened even further recently. And that is why we've now shorted process, not because we are we like Naspash only for its discount to the 10 cent valuation, but we think there could be in the coming year some corporate action between Naspash and process. Uh, that would lead to an unlock of the discount between those two entities. And and I would put money on effectively those two companies becoming one. And effectively the discount between Naspash and, te- and Process rather disappearing completely as the two companies effectively become one company in the next year. That is what we've positioned for. So you don't think that uh, Process will sell 10 cent shares? No, we think politically it is too sensitive. We think that a lot of work has been done by Chris Backer to have very good relationships in China. And we think that those relationships might be strained if Process wanted to sell down the 10 cent shielding aggressively or wanted to unbundle the 10 cent shielding. So we do think that the options are limited when it comes to what Process can do with its 10 cent holding. They could, for instance, look to list the uh, e-commerce businesses out of Process or do something big in the uh, in the food delivery businesses. They try to do that, both with uh, Just Eat as well as with eBay, uh, but they lost out on both those big transactions in the last year. So what's left for us is corporate action between Naspash and Process and not any large corporate action between Process and Tencent, given the, the political sensitivity regarding that stake in China. That was Jean-Pierre Fester of Protea Capital Management. He's a hedge fund manager who knows how to make money when stocks go down as well as up. Coming up now, my colleague Charles Boerter has the CFA designation, which is the Chartered Financial Analyst qualification, behind his name. Charles works on assessing the intrinsic value of stocks as a service to business readers who want to assess share prices. Charles, before we get into the details of ShopRite, which you've analysed for us today, please briefly explain what intrinsic value is why it's important, and how you arrive at an intrinsic value. Jackie, intrinsic value is the value that analysts, uh, uh, portfolio managers and analysts would use to evaluate the investment decision, like buying a share. And it's worked out, it essentially depends on three factors. So the first factor is the growth of earnings or the growth of cash flows of a business. The second is the risk or the required return that investors would require to invest in an asset of that risk. So, for instance, in a bank, when you put your money in a bank, you only require about 5 6 7% because the bank is very safe. But if you're going to invest in anything where there's a possibility of losing your money, you want more uh, 
benefit from that. And so that is why the required return of shares in our markets higher, usually 15% for the bigger companies. But that's just a rule of thumb. And the third thing that's very important is the return on that capital. And what that means is for every rand the business uses to generate earnings, uh, what is the rate at which it generates those earnings? So let's say it uses a rand to generate 10 cents of earnings, then its return on equity is 10%. So to sum that up, there's three factors that determine intrinsic value. The first is the growth of earnings or cash flows. The second is the risk or the opportunity cost of the capital that the business uses. And the third is how effectively uh, a business uses that capital. What does your analysis tell us about ShopRite? Okay, so ShopRite, I value the present at a target price or intrinsic value of 190 Rand. Uh, it finished the day at 152, which in my, yeah, it puts it on a, a premium. So intrinsic value is at a premium of 25%, which means uh, I think it's a good buying opportunity. So anything 20% and under gives you a very good buying opportunity. So if the share price is less than your intrinsic value, by 20% or more, I think that gives you a good margin of safety, a room for error, if you will, to buy the share. Um, so just to come back, the reason why I think ShopRite um, is worth this much is uh, it's doing well in its return on capital uh, metrics. It's improving that even uh, as it's going into the future by using less inventory. It's got plans to use less inventory to make its profits it's de-risking its business, so that's the risk part by moving out of countries like Nigeria, uh, which I think is a good thing. And then it's also, but on the other hand, it could be a little bit less growth because it's moving out of those countries. So it's moving back to South Africa, and we know there's almost a shop right or a use save or a checkers on every corner. So it means the growth might be slow going forward, the risk might be uh, less, in my opinion, and the returns are picking up as the company becomes more efficient. So if you put those three t- things together, I think you get a company that's worth more than the current share price. You've been listening to Charles Boerter of biznews.com. For more on his analysis on ShopRite, do head to biznews.com. If you think Bitcoin prices have given its holders a roller coaster ride over the past few months, be warned. Things are going to get a lot more heated from here. That's the forecast from Richard Byworth, the CEO of NASDAQ-listed cryptocurrency exchange Diginex. He spoke to our partners at Bloomberg about why he believes the bull run is still in its early stages. Take a listen. First off, what do you make of this surge to 60000 bucks? Uh, it's all um, it's all in the process. Um, we've obviously got a huge macro element of what's going on here with the Fed with no other way out of its current predicament than to just continue to print money. They've got two major problems. Obviously, they are battling a lack of growth, um, but they're also battling the fact that they have a $28 trillion debt pile in the United States. So if they can't get growth, they can't stimulate jobs, then they can't end up uh, diminishing that pile. So the only way that they can actually um, attack it at all is by devaluing it. And so this is what we're starting to see here. Massive monetary stimulus uh, against um, the the devaluation of the dollar. Um, And that is having a push effect onto Bitcoin, which is already um, having a supply side crisis due to the halving that we saw uh, May 20 last year. And, you know, then you're starting to see corporate adoption, institutional adoption um, to a degree that is so extreme. You've got four companies in MicroStrategy, Tesla, Square, and now recently MyTo. Between the four, those four companies, they bought 40% of the annual supply of Bitcoin in just a few months. So... Um, we really have a supply side crisis in Bitcoin. This is only the early stage of the rally. Um, things are going to get a lot more heated from here. So digital assets becoming more compelling in 12 months. What price will it be for Bitcoin? Um, I think we're, we're modeling out about 175000 um, for the price of Bitcoin um, by the end of this year. 
Um, we think that the way that we're obviously starting to see this, um, this institutional adoption is really quite key, um, as well as obviously the corporates you're seeing, macro hedge fund managers that have been in the space for some time. You're now starting to see some of the bond guys get involved in this space. And this is quite critical. I mean, they've obviously been looking at, you know, twenties of trillions of dollars of negatively yielding paper. And they're looking around trying to see how does this paradigm shift and started to look at Bitcoin and understand how this is actually a better store of value than gold and it's digital and every aspect that it compares itself to gold, um, it's actually improving on gold. So um, if you look at various uh, aspects of stock to flow, um, the way that we've already seen 18.6 million uh, Bitcoin already be mined out of the 21 million supply. We're already starting to run into to a, an interesting ratio on a stock to flow basis. Um, and so we, we think that probably by end of October uh, into the latter part of the year, we're going to see that peak. Um, and it could end up running through that, but 175,000 is where we've, uh, we've modeled out. Uh, many crypto players are looking to list, uh, accelerating a trend which, uh, which started last year. Will it be too crowded a market? Um, there's obviously a lot of players um, in, in crypto. Um, I think we've seen 300 different exchanges globally. I think the change that you're going to see is the big focus on regulation. Uh, even last week, we started to see even more action from the CFTC uh, around exchanges that were accessing U.S. residents. Um, so regulatory focus is, is, is going to be the key. That was always the, the aspect we came from when building Diginex. But also, I think, a very heavy focus around KYC and AML. FATF, the global regulator, is implementing what's referred to as the travel rule this year, which is actually more stringent regulatory guidelines around crypto than we see uh, for the current banks. So that's going to roll out this year. Um, and we're going to see a lot of exchanges really struggle um, with how to actually deal with that um, within their frameworks. Richard, what are the obstacles to Bitcoin going to levels that you just uh, mentioned? And uh, what about the whole idea of the blockchain behind it and the anonymity that it actually does have? Many regulators have looked at this very closely. What would happen if that anonymity was taken away from Bitcoin? What would happen to this currency and what would happen to others which are also anonymous? Well, actually, Bitcoin isn't anonymous. Um, once you start to be able to track who owns what wallets, then you can very easily map all the transactions within the network. Um, in fact, the the uh, FBI, they use um, this uh, quite, um, quite effectively um, to track down criminals and shut down criminal activity. So Bitcoin itself is not particularly anonymous. The blockchain it can be tracked very, very easily. Um, we use the blockchain um, tracking tools to monitor all assets coming into our exchange. So I think that the, the idea of block, block Bitcoin being anonymous is, is probably a, a little bit uh, old, given what we're seeing around this uh, FATF uh, regulatory guidelines. This is all about identification of these wallets. So what you're going to effectively see is complete clarity around the Bitcoin network. And, uh, and, and what that brings. In terms of what can get in the way of the price, I think that if we did see uh, a continuing spike in interest rates and for some reason the Fed deciding to reverse course, that would put a bit of a dampener on things. Um, but as, as, as I mentioned earlier, I mean, the Fed is, is not in a position to be able to do that. They can risk deflation at no cost. It, it's absolutely impossible that they could allow for that to happen, especially when you've got a, you know, a longer term technological backdrop that is very deflationary. You think about general purpose AI, self-driving cars, solar energy, all of these things are removing the human capital element of their production. And so jobs are going to be lost in droves. And the Fed is very aware of that. So even though they may react in the short term with a brief uptick in rates, they're, they're going to be pulling that back very, very quickly. Richard, you've also launched a, a coin, haven't you? Tell us a bit about it. And what about the interest that you've managed to garner? 
Sure. So we actually we launched the coin um, for for earning tomorrow morning. We're not actually uh, doing any kind of sale of the coin. This is the first time that an exchange is doing a uh, no sale uh, earning token. So effectively, people come onto the platform, they can earn it by trading, and then subsequently they earn it by staking it. Um, so it's it's got attributes of Bitcoin in that it is finite. It's got 21 million. Um, tokens that will ever be issued. It has a block reward daily, um, so an even block block reward schedule. Um, those blocks uh, halve in reward size every 90 blocks, and the issuance process goes on for about two years. Um, so it's a little nod to Bitcoin and our uh, our um, our support, obviously, of that asset, but also with the staking element is a little bit towards that DeFi world where you can get yield daily uh, on your on your Equo coin. That was Richard Byworth, the CEO of Nasdaq-listed cryptocurrency exchange Diginex. He believes that Bitcoin could easily go to $175,000. China's fintech clampdown has soured market sentiment towards China stocks, with mutual funds losing gains in the biggest sell-off in months. But Peter Hundersmark, a fund manager at South Africa's flagship asset management, says investors that turn their backs on China do so at their peril. Earlier, he spoke to me, Jackie Cameron of BizNews, about why the global balance of power is shifting inexorably towards China. I'm Jackie Cameron for BizNews. With me is Peter Hundersmark, flagship asset management fund manager who has had his eye on China for a long time and has a number of Chinese stocks in his flagship fund. Peter, can you tell us, first of all, your broad brushstrokes overview of what's happening in China now? We've seen that it, there's been a bit, lot of volatility and some of the favorite stocks aren't looking quite as good. Could you just summarize what your perception is of what's been happening there? So flagship is a specialist global asset manager and we spend quite a bit of our time canvassing the globe looking for ideas for clients and we've been doing so for quite a long time and China always features quite highly so it's very topical it's a very large nation and it's character and judged differently in the media. And what's currently happening there is quite interesting because, in effect, China is going through what many of the Western nations have gone through over the past 10 years, but with more of a microscope on it. So so many of the businesses that operate there operate, uh, obviously, in a different society. So the Chinese see their society very differently. It's it's a far more uh, controlled society than what we here in the West would favor. And and what we're seeing now is the effects of regulation uh, across many of, of their more powerful tech businesses. So the Chinese version of Google and, and the like, for example. Um, what I would say, though, is it's not dissimilar from what, what we have seen and are continuing to see in Europe and the U.S. And we, in fact, have thoughts that the way the Chinese are doing it might be even more efficient uh, and more fair than what's being conducted in the West. Can you just elaborate on why? I think what we do here in, in South Africa and in Europe and the U.S. is we view China from Western eyes. And we, you know, what I love to see in the, in the, in the press, what I often see is, is how China's rise is unsustainable, while, while simultaneously investors and commentators will claim that the Western world's advancement is somehow more sustainable. Your assumptions are your windows to the world, and you need to scrub them off every now and then and look at the facts. The facts are that China has achieved, since it's opened up its society in the 1970s, nearly 10% growth year on year. They've lifted over 800 million people out of poverty, and they've created an enormously successful society built on a very ambitious and a very smart population. And they've chosen to to govern their society in a different manner. But uh, so far, looking from the outside in, one can say that it works very well. So they've survived the pandemic in a far better way than, than what we've seen at the U.S. and the U.K., for example, the way that they've um, approached you know, supporting their economy and leading their economies out of the COVID pandemic. And we see evidence across the board of China running very uh, sensible economic policies. So when we look here at the way they're regulating their tech industry, uh, a lot of it seems very sensible uh, from the outside. So they have some very large businesses that have overreached, for example, Alibaba and Tencent into areas like media where they can influence place, you know, the people outside of, of their control. And that's something that the Chinese uh, frown upon. As a society, they've chosen to conduct themselves differently. And that is their choice. It works 
and is working for the Chinese for the Chinese nations. So if you compare that to what's happening uh, in the state of California with you know the regulations around Uber and its workers uh, and the way that the previous U.S. president has acted towards uh, companies like TikTok, it begs the question: you know, who's being fair, who's being rational, and who's being not? So just what does this all mean for investors then? I mean, ten cent holdings has really the share price has taken an absolute hammering. Is this just a temporary glitch? So so we believe it is. Um, Tencent has a very, very powerful and high-quality business model. And at Flagship, we spend quite a lot of time um, investing and, and understanding high-quality business models. So it takes us a long time to, to invest in companies. Tencent is one of our investee companies. And, and although it's grown and everyone focuses on the growth, what Tencent's really done very well is it's, it's diversified its business away from gaming and into other areas. Now, naturally, as an emerging economy, China needs to figure out how it wants to to regulate those areas that Tencent has moved into, so financing and social media and advertising. Uh, and that's a, as a society, they need to make that call and they need to they need to learn. Um, and and our Tencent is, is is unfortunately bearing the brunt of that learning experience. But we found that um, you know businesses as dominant as Tencent. Typically, it's it's more in government's interest to to regulate them uh, and to understand them and to work with them than it is to destroy them. Uh, particularly when they play such a vital role in in the Chinese economy in terms of the Chinese competitiveness um, globally and also what they, the role they play in, in the average Chinese person's life. So so we take a a positive view on on that regulation assists and entrenches the incumbents um, more than it more than it hurts them that, I, that makes sense i see in your top 10 fund holdings in your international flexible fund you have 10 cents you also have alibaba uh, why do you have both of them do you think both of them are going to be okay in the long run and will withstand all this pressure from the chinese regulators so uh, that is in a nutshell what we believe and um, 10 cents and alibaba both focus on different areas so alibaba is more of a uh, an e-commerce platform, which also has uh, ancillary businesses in financing and in um, cloud services, whereas Tencent is is the gaming gateway for, for most people in China, and obviously their WeChat and QQ apps are, are ubiquitous in China. So, so they're both seen as large tech-enabled businesses, but in reality, they focus on different areas of the market that are growing very strongly, and we're very positive on on the growth prospects and also on the management of those two businesses. Um, you know, from a bottom-up perspective, which is how we look at things. It looks both of them look very attractive, and we're looking to add more to China. Actually, are you? Which companies are you looking to add? It takes us a while to to really pull the trigger because we have such a, a thorough process. But the companies range across consumer discretionary to cloud computing. One of the things we've noticed is that distance amongst global investors to really look at China because of these, you know, the anti-China bias uh, that we believe has mischaracterized China's advances compared to, to modern Western democracies, and and you know the, their public uh, markets and their the, the share prices of their companies you know, are going to have a very bright future, the same way that the U.S. and Europe had in the early 1900s. Uh, a lot of South so Africans are interested in investing in Chinese stocks, but it's quite difficult because these stocks are on Chinese stock markets or quite difficult to get your hands on via the other exchanges. So there is an interest in investing through funds, but why would a South African invest in a fund that has Tencent in it when they can just buy Nuspers? Yeah, that's that's often a, um, something that we've heard. So Tencent is one of our holdings, but um, you know it isn't it isn't the only one. You know, Nuspers has been a great boon to South African investors, but it also sits uh, it holds its Tencent structure in a uh, in a holding company that doesn't express the true value of Tencent and, and most financial commentators are aware of that. So you, had you held Tencent 10 years ago in Uspers, you would have done much better out of Tencent. Like I said, Tencent's one opportunity out of, out of many that we're looking at. Do you think that Nuspers is going to... You're listening to the Biz News Power Hour with Jackie Cameron. Many South Africans have been quietly self-medicating on ivermectin to prevent and treat COVID-19. Earlier this year, the South African Health Products Regulatory Authority approved limited use of ivermectin to treat COVID-19 on compassionate grounds. But a group of pharmacists who operate under the pharma value chain, AfriForum, a group of doctors and the African Christian Democratic Party headed to court to try to get blanket approval for the use of ivermectin for COVID-19. Earlier today, the ACDP announced that it has secured a major victory in court. 
It says that the South African Health Products Regulatory Authority has informed the ACDP that ivermectin should be registered this week. The ACDP's lawyer, Bongani Lutuli, spoke to me, Jackie Cameron of Biz News, about the latest developments in the case that may have saved thousands of lives. Um, Jackie, so the papers have been exchanged back and forth, you know, where ACDP has taken SAPRA and the minister to court to seek the usage and rollout of ivermectin. Now, SAPRA has been reluctant to do that. So what they did was opportunistically, they sent out a program, what they call the compassionate program, uh, which meant that doctors would have to apply under Section 21 um, to get permission to use ivermectin, which is quite a bureaucratic process, frustrating and completely unworkable, uh, because they they contended that ivermectin was not fit for human use and was banned in the Republic. Now, we then filed our papers uh, with, with secured dates being the 29th, 30th, and 31st for the oral arguments we argued. Now, I didn't get a call. I'm the attorney also of ACDP in this matter. I got a call yesterday um, by SAPRA's attorney that they want to chat to us uh, on the developments. Now, it turns out that on Wednesday, they will be, and due to the pressure of ACDP and others, they, they've literally conceded to the usage and rollout of ivermectin, and they will be raising the product on on Wednesday. So we then discussed the draft order, and the draft order essentially covers everything that ACDP had sought by way of relief in the court. It's a major breakthrough um, for the people of South Africa because we believed and been very adamant that ivermectin can assist in this uh, pandemic. Um, we've seen it from other governments. So it's a huge victory for us. Can anything happen before this registration of the drug? Can something still go wrong? Can it be taken to a higher court? Or is this now a done deal? Well, remember, uh, because the matter is set down for 29, 30 and 31. Of March. Which meant, yes, we were going to argue the substance of the application. But now, They've conceded and they've come now and said, look, we're going to roll out Avermectin by, by using this product uh, that contains Avermectin. So they've consented to the order that we have sought. So this is now a settlement as opposed to a directive from court. So we've agreed then that it's going to be made an order of court so that, you know, we don't need to go to court on the 29th to the 31st because they've literally conceded. So when will it be legal to start taking ivermectin to uh, prevent and treat COVID-19? Uh, my apologies, I didn't get the question. When will it become legal to to, ta- to start taking ivermectin as a prophylaxis? Or well, from Wednesday. To, from from Wednesday. Wednesday. And what about all the people that have been res- arrested so far for using ivermectin and prescribing it? Yeah, I think those people have to be given some kind of amnesty. Uh, even though the law, normally what happens is if the law comes to effect, one needs to see it retrospectively, whether it's a retrospective application or not. It would be completely unfair in this context to say those that have been arrested must continue being prosecuted when now it's legal. Uh, so there needs to be a discharge of those, and that's what we're going to be calling out for. There needs to be a discharge of all those. We have felt that those were unlawful arrests in any event um, because of our conviction on ivermectin. And that's going to be the stance. We're going to have to agitate for those people to be discharged, free from prosecution. Why has the ACDP taken this on as its battle? Um, We're concerned about the way the government has monopolized uh, the pandemic. The government has completely not consulted on alternatives. The government has pressed on using, uh, suggesting vaccines that are untested. We know the you know, um, the disaster with AstraZeneca rollout and what has happened. That's because government hasn't been consulting. And so we've, we've heard from other jurisdictions and we've got, you know, reports from and proof from some of the doctors around the effective use of ivermectin, you know, for treatment. And so we've, we've believed in this product and we've been agitating for it, but the government has been tone deaf. And I think science, as well as the developments now in the concession, have literally put paid to our arguments, and we've been vindicated because of them. 
and safe spe- for human consumption. That's been um, the discourse. And specifically, which products? Because some of these are for veterinary use, some for human consumption. Have you set out the specific names of the products that will now be authorised? Well, um, it will basically, it says that ivermectin is a product that is contained in any treatment will be used. Um, there's been a misnomer as to whether it's authorised or not. It has been used for treatment of, of animals, as we know. And we know that say for human treatment, it's a matter of dosage. So whatever the doctor, and that's in the uh, purview of the doctor themselves, when they prescribe a particular dosage, then then we know that's that's safe, you know. So we we saying any product that that has ivermectin, which is what they are doing now on Wednesday, is safe uh, for treatment, and the doctors can get to the realm of specifically the amount, the quantity, the dosage, etc. This is a major game changer because the government has taken so long to roll out vaccines. We've got the COVID South Africa variant. How long do you think it will take to start rolling out ivermectin as a treatment? Effectively. <laughs> Effectively, we compounded from Wednesday. Uh, because remember, the doctors, the, the, the pharmacists have the product. It's not like it's going to be bought somewhere. We already have the product. It was just being used um, illicitly because it was not regulated. It was not legal. But now, not a matter of having a proper government scheme. That's why we've been against uh, the monopolization of any intervention. Anybody can roll out. If private sector is available, we, we shouldn't just leave it for government. So anybody who can compound it, it can definitely be rolled out. That's our stance. Pangani, this isn't only a victory for South Africa, but in other countries, including Britain, there have been uh, scientists pushing for approval of ivermectin. Is this a world yes. first that South Africa will now regulate and approve yes. ivermectin for use in fighting COVID-19? Absolutely, absolutely. But I think we are now aligned with the norms um, of some of the countries. I mean, if you look at the EU developments around AstraZeneca vaccine, they've, they've stopped. Germany, I think, is the latest country that has also uh, put the program to a halt. Uh, so that means really more countries are looking at alternatives and, and, and others that haven't been reluctant to look at um, ivermectin is an intervention are starting to look at it. Zimbabwe has always been talking about it. Brazil um, has been rolling it out. So it was a matter of political will for South Africa to join those that, um, that are rolling it out. Who in the ACDP has been pushing this? Well, uh, firstly, the entire ACDP has been from the NEC level. Our president um, actually gave a press statement when the IFT had, had threatened to take the government uh, to court over uh, ivermectin, and they didn't. And the ACDP said, look, all political parties must support the, the, the IFP, and let's all, with like-minded parties, join. They then uh, slipped through the cracks, and then we took over the challenge, and we took, we took um, the government to court, and here we are with the results. So it was a collective uh, decision in the ACDP from the president um, having the... Con- the entire buy-in from the NEC. So it is an NEC ACDP decision on ivermectin. You've been listening to Bongani Lutuli, the lawyer who has been driving the fight to get ivermectin approved for use against COVID-19 in South Africa. My colleague Justin Rowe Roberts covers the Johannesburg stock market for biznews.com. Justin, please bring us up to date with the news on the JSE today. The JSE All Share Index was slightly down to 67,400. Diversified miner Sabanya Stillwater climbed 4.5% to over 70 rand a share. ShopRite increased by 7 rand to 152 rand a share on the back of an impressive half-year results announcement and dividend declaration. Index heavyweight Naspis increased 35 rand to 3,440 rand a share. Another down day for the banking sector with ABSA the biggest loser falling over 4% to 127 rand a share. In the currency markets, the rand was flat against all the major currencies to 14 rand and 83 cents against the greenback, 20 rand and 60 cents against the pound, and 17 rand and 65 cents against the euro. Gold is up to $1,737 an ounce. Bitcoin is flat on the day. One Bitcoin will put you back 825,000 rand. Brent crude is down at $68.30 a barrel. And the US markets are mixed with the Dow Jones Industrial Average in the red. S&P 500 flat, and NASDAQ in the green.
that's all we've got time for today. From me, Jackie Cameron, and the rest of the Biz News team, thank you for joining us here on Fine Music Radio FM and DSTV Channel 838. We'll be back at the same time tomorrow. You can catch up on all of the interviews on the Biz News Power Hour Spotify channel. Until next time. You've been listening to the Power Hour, brought to you by the team at Biz News.